turn over to Matthew chapter 17 as uh, we continue our studies through the gospel of Matthew. And just a word, if you miss any of these, they're on the website. There's a podcast and uh, iTunes and all that, so you can catch up. <clears throat> also, I want to encourage you to be in prayer for um, Graceful Truth, the radio ministry. We have a uh, uh, radio program every Sunday at 3.30 on KFAX. And so as you tune into that or uh, pray you're tuning in, but um, uh, pray that you would be praying for the people who are hearing that and uh, that it, his word would go out into this Bay Area that so needs the word of God. Amen. Uh, this morning, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 17, verse uh, 14 to 21. Matthew 17, verses 14 to 21. And you just follow along in your Bibles as I read this text for us. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. That last verse is added in the authorized version. It's not in some of the original text, just so you know. Have you ever wondered what non-Christians think about our faith as believers? What non-Christians, when they look at a Christian, and they look at everything that a Christian believes and upholds, I wonder what goes through their minds. Well, someone asked that question. And here's... Maybe the answer. They are totally devoted, when they're looking at a Christian, here's what a non-Christian sees. They are totally devoted to someone they have never seen. They expect to go to heaven on someone else's merit and not their own. They empty themselves in order to be filled. They confess they are wrong in order to be declared right. They are the richest when they are the poorest. They are the strongest when they are the weakest They forsake all in order to receive. They die in order to live. They see the invisible. They hear the inaudible. And they know that all that passes all understanding. Christian faith is a walk of faith. There was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Mrs. Crenshaw and she decided she had some extra time in the class at the end of the class. So she thought, you know, I'll just have the kids draw a picture for me. Any picture you want. And they had about 10 minutes. Well, the 10 minutes was over. And one little boy, Eli, was over in the corner just going at his piece of paper with these crayons and pencils. And, all. 
And she said, are you done? I'm not done yet. And so, you know, curiosity got her. And she walked over and she said, well, Eli. And she looked down at the page on his desk and she said, Eli, what are you, what are you drawing? She says, I'm draw-, he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she said, well, Eli, nobody has ever seen God. And we, nobody knows what he looks like. And to that, Eli looked at her and said, just hold on a second and I'll show you. <laughs> See, sometimes our faith is a faith that's unseen. It's a faith that sometimes is hard to to grasp. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It didn't say it's difficult, right? It said it's impossible. One important factor in any Christian's walk is the factor of faith. And that's our topic for this morning. We are to walk by faith. Yet, the walk of sight seems so much easier, doesn't it? It seems so much more logical. Faith requires us to believe in things we can't see. So we're going to be talking about the faith factor today. Now, the passage we just read is rather interesting, and hopefully we can clarify some things in this as we walk through it together this morning. But the key to this whole passage is found in verse 20, in verse 20, where Jesus basically says to them, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That's the key to understanding this whole passage. Uh, It's the the key of faith. Now, you've heard that many times, faith can move mountains. What does he mean by that? We're going to look into that. Faith accomplishes great things, no doubt. Do you look in your own life and you look in the life of other believers? That's obvious. And so we understand even through also in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 we have a great chapter of faith and you can read that on your own and see how faith uh, was activated in people's lives in the Bible as a testimony of the power of faith but the point of the whole passage here in many ways is to summarize where it's kind of the whole testimony of the people of God through all of history and it brings it down to the power of faith Well, let's look at this setting because it's kind of an important thing to to understand where we're at in Matthew. Uh, In verse 14, he starts kind of a special section of Matthew. He begins to teach his disciples in an instructional manner some very basic things. He wants them to understand. Remember, he's months away from the cross. He's months from leaving these guys on their own. Outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. But physically, Jesus Christ is leaving planet Earth in a matter of months. So his goal is to instruct his disciples. That's why he's pulling away from the bigger crowds, trying to anyway. They're still hunting him down. But he's trying to spend more time with his disciples. And beginning in verse 14 of chapter 13, all the way through the end of chapter 20, our Lord is giving them little kind of tidbits of truth, little lessons that he wants them to understand. He's giving them a final preparation for ministry. 
He's given them the revelation of his own person as the king up to this point. There's no doubt in their minds who he is. He's given them the revelation of his kingdom. He showed that to them. And now he gives them the revelation of principles for living in that kingdom. That's basically what he's going to be doing. And there's many lessons that he teaches them and also that we can glean from that a lot of practical truth. But in chapter 13, he teaches about faith. Next week, we'll see what he teaches about citizenship. Chapter 18, he talks about humility. He talks about what it means to uh, uh, offend somebody. He talks about discipline. He teaches them about forgiveness. Chapter 19, he teaches them about marriage and divorce and children and wealth and rewards. See, it's all practical stuff he's going to be teaching. And in verse 20, he teaches them about their position and about compassion. And all these things deal with his coming kingdom. But we can apply them to our own lives even now. Well, look at the setting for me. Because this whole scene takes place as the disciples, as we looked at last week, Peter, James, and John, where did they go? They went up to the mount. We don't know what mountain it was, but they went up on a mountain with Jesus. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because that's where the glory of God was revealed just a little bit through Christ. We looked at that last week. And they saw the glory of Christ, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory shining through Christ. He just pulled it back, just the curtain a little bit, to give him a glimpse of what's to come because he understood that when he said, you know what, unless you deny yourself and you're willing to die for me, you can't follow me. That's a hard truth to grasp. And so he wants them to understand that, hey, it doesn't end there. There's something to live for here, guys. There's something to move on to the next stage in our spiritual life. You don't just because I go to the cross and die doesn't mean it's over. So he takes them up to this mountain and he shows them his glory in a magnificent thing. And uh, he has some prophets there who are speaking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Amazing. Can you imagine seeing that right in front of your face? We understood that they were talking to Jesus about his soon departure, his death. Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about it, and obviously the disciples heard it. I mean, what a glorious time. It's kind of like when you go to a retreat and everything's just great and all the stuff's provided and you show up and you have a wonderful speaker and the worship's just so sweet and you make some new relationships and then, you know, the two or three days or week is over and you're driving back down the mountain and you're starting to think about work again. You're starting to think about family problems, financial issues. All this stuff starts to flood back into your mind and that can be an overwhelming experience. Well, verse 14 tells us when they had come down, they had come to the multitude. There's a bunch of people gathered there with the other disciples who were left behind, the other nine. And it says, a certain man came to him. Now, this is kind of the story that Jesus sets up the lesson with. Jesus always used real life stories to teach his disciples. We see that throughout the book of Matthew and the other Gospels. So they come down off this mountain, and they meet this multitude of people. The other Gospel writers tell us more about the crowd. Mark says that it includes such people as the scribes, 
who were the, the Jewish legal experts of the day. There was just the, the normal people who followed Jesus just to see what miracle he was going to do next. But there was also the nine disciples who were there, who weren't included up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you have the disciples, the scribes, multitude of people, boys, girls, men, women, different ages. And they're all there waiting to meet Jesus and the three who went up on the mountain with him. And this sets up his his lesson that he wants to teach them. He was a master at teaching. He used real-life situations to drive these truths deep into their hearts and their minds. Now, the first thing we see in verses 14 and 16 is this father and his desperate cry. It says they came, a certain man came to him, and look at what happens. It says, kneeling down to him, before him, which shows a reverence. We don't know anything other than what the scripture tells us about this guy, so I don't know if he was a religious man. I don't know. I don't know if he fully believed in Christ or not. I don't know. He probably knew, like everybody else, that Christ had done some incredible miracles. And they were all aware of that, or they wouldn't have been there waiting for him to come down off the mountain. And so somewhere along the line, maybe he saw him heal somebody else or whatever, this man went to Christ, and it says that he knelt down in almost a a worshipful stance before the Lord. And that's what he calls him. Look at verse 15. He says, Lord... So it's, it's, it's more than just sir. We're not saying this guy was a follower of Christ or a Christian. I don't know what was in his heart, but he obviously had some reverence for who Christ was because he knew that he was divine. He knew that this man could heal. He wouldn't go up to someone who could possibly heal someone and he wanted something from and say, hey, dude, help me out. He's not going to be that irreverent. He's going to go before him. He's going to bow down. He's going to cry out, Lord. And then he says this, have mercy on my son. In the original language, that's an aorist imperative. In other words, he is absolutely begging for the mercy of Christ concerning his son. He begs for an instantaneous healing. He wants Jesus to heal his son. That word mercy just means to show compassion. And that's what Christ did. And you know what? That's still what Christ does today. He shows compassion. He demonstrates compassion. And this man is desperately crying out to the only one that he knows could change his son. Please show compassion on my son. This father is in deep agony. This is a a pleading cry from a desperate soul. Those of you that have children, can you imagine being in a situation where you couldn't do anything for your own child? Couldn't do anything. Couldn't help them in any way. You would cry out to anybody. If you knew someone could help your child, maybe it was a sickness, maybe it's whatever, you would go to that person and you would beg them 
to intercede on your behalf and help your dear child. That's what is in this father's heart. And as you read this story further, and you compare the different narratives between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes obvious why it is such a desperate cry. Why he is so beside himself for his son. Verse 15 says that he is an epileptic. Interesting word. means moonstruck. That's what the literal rendering of that word means. Moonstruck. Back then when they saw someone acting strange in their culture, they would say, ah, it's it's the moon. (laughs) The moon is causing it. And it's not so far from even what we do today, if you think about it. What do we think of somebody that, that, what do we call somebody that acts oddly or acts kind of strange? We call him a what? A lunatic. Same thing. Same thing. Just in their culture, they didn't have all the science and knowledge that we do. So when they saw someone who was a epileptic, they thought, wow, this must be caused by the, the moon. The only other place this word is used is Matthew 4, 24. But it describes this behavior that includes epilepsy, which we know to be a nervous disorder. It causes convulsions. It causes seizures. It can be somewhat controlled today, but it's still a very serious medical condition. But in the ancient times, they didn't know that, and so they thought, well, it's, it's full moon or whatever, you know, the tide's coming in, or whatever they would attribute it to. And it also says there, he suffers severely. He suffers severely. It means he's just the worst epileptic there ever was. I mean, this is an epileptic of all proportions. Full-blown epilepsy was in this boy. It's not a mild case. This is a major case. Mark, in Matthew, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 17, tells us also that the man, or the boy was dumb. <clears throat> he couldn't speak. And he couldn't hear. So he had ep- epilepsy, He couldn't speak. He couldn't hear. He was deaf and dumb. And then it says in Matthew, it says that he falls, he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So when this boy, this child would go into his fits of epilepsy, he would, back in those days, they would have fires everywhere. That's how they cooked outside. They did all the things around a ring of fire. And there would be wouldn't be uncommon to have several fires, uh, you know, even around your own household to cook different things. So whenever this boy was having these seizures, he would go throw himself into the fire. Or if there was a well, he would go try to drown himself in the well. And he'd thrash about, and it just seemed uncontrollably epileptic in his behavior. I mean, can you imagine your, your little boy, your little girl having something like that and, and not being able to control it? 
how desperate you would become as a parent. So you have a child with a severe case of epilepsy, seizures, deaf and dumb. He's constantly jumping into fires and trying to drown himself in wells. Mark and Luke even add other symptoms. Mark says that there was a demon in him, and the demon in him says this. It says that it takes him and it tears him. Literally just thrashes him about uncontrollably. Smashing him down on the ground. So he's probably getting physical cuts on his body. Luke says that the demon threw him down or slammed him down. Mark says that he even foams at the mouth when he's convulsing. Wallows and rolls around in the dirt. It says that he withers away. It was such a severe condition for this child that he couldn't even eat. Withers away means his body's just growing weaker and weaker by the day. Such a horrible condition. It's totally out of control. And if that's not bad enough, Mark adds that the demon in him was a foul, unclean demon. (laughs) What does that mean? I thought all demons were foul and unclean. Well, they are for the most part, but maybe that indicates that somehow this boy uttered profanity. Maybe he acted lewdly in front of people. We don't know. Somehow he was immoral and it was way out of control. In Mark chapter 9, the question is asked of the father, when did he get like this? When did this happen to your son? Father says, he was like this since he was a child. Can you understand what's going through this father's heart? I mean, year after year of dealing with a child that is just totally out of control, physically, morally. He's got a heartache. He's trying to deal with this every day. This was his only son, it tells us. So what a interesting picture that Jesus paints for us here. Because here we have a father with his only son being tormented by this demon. The only beloved son of his father. And he's about to come face to face with the only beloved son of God. See, Jesus can identify with this situation. Jesus can understand the heart of this father. And so the father comes and he pleads with Jesus. Have mercy on me. Have compassion on me. Or rather, on my son. I mean, do you see the stark contrast between what these disciples are facing now and what they faced probably just a few hours ago when they were up on the mountain with Jesus? What a contrast. What a contrast. They're up there basking in the glory of God, three of them with Christ, Elijah and Moses, getting a preview of the second coming. And then after a few hours, they come back down into the sin-diseased world, back into the valley. I mean, that's just life, isn't it? You can't live on the mountaintop. 
doesn't work that way, especially as Christians. We're called to go back down into the valley, get back out into the world, get our, roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty for Christ. There's a world out there that's lost and dying in sin. We have the answer. We have the gospel of Christ, the only power that can transform the human heart. I mean, yeah, I'd like to stay up on the mountain. Who wouldn't? But that's not what God has for us. Well, you might say, well, how does somebody get demons like this? How does this happen to somebody? This boy must have brought it on himself. Not necessarily. Let me tell you something. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to do anything to get like this. (laughs) If Satan chooses to come and send one of his demons to possess you, he can do it just like that. If you're not a Christian. Because you don't have any power to deal with it. You have no way to resist it. This child wasn't evil. It says that he was this way since his childhood, early childhood. It was the choice of the demons, perhaps... Not even the choice of the child in terms of any moral choice or anything like that. And so we see them back into reality. This is the real world they're living in. And here we have a pleading father with this son that is just an utter disaster. And he has no resources to make any change in his son's life at all. The desperate cry of the father. Look at verse 16, because here we see the little faith of the followers. Verse 16, the father says, So I brought him to your disciples. Well, which disciples would that be? The nine that were still down here in the valley, right? The other three went up with Jesus. And and the father's saying, I brought him to your disciples. And they couldn't heal him. Greek word, we get the word therapy from used throughout the New Testament for healing. I brought them to your disciples and they couldn't do it. To me, that just sounds odd. And the reason I say that is look back at Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 1. It says, And when Jesus had called his twelve disciples, he gave them, what? Power over, what? Unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Look at verse 7, chapter 10. It says, and as you go, this is Jesus speaking, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, what? Cast out demons. Hey, this is their commission. This is what the Lord has told them to do. And you say, well, okay, but that's a pretty big task. Well, the key to understand this is they've already been doing it. See, they've been out there healing the sick. They've been out there casting out demons. This isn't the first time that they had tried to cast out a demon. Mark chapter 6, verse 13 tells us that he sent the twelve forth to preach and to heal And then it says in verse 13, and they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
So what's going on here? They had done it before, and all of a sudden, now they can't do it? They knew Jesus gave them the power. They knew they had accomplished this in the past. And now all of a sudden, they just can't do it? And they lost the power? Luke adds, by the way, to the story that the father pled with them. In the nine who were down below, he pled with them to do this. And they couldn't do it. Jesus gave them the promise that they could do it, didn't he? We just read it in chapter 10. You're going to go do this. And he proved the promise to them by allowing them to physically go out and cast out demons. They were physically doing it. So they had the promise, and they had the power. What's going on here? It's not too hard to figure out. They didn't appropriate the power that they had. It was available, but they didn't appropriate it. They couldn't do it in chapter 17, even though they were promised that they could in chapter 10. So the father pressed past these nine disciples as Jesus came down off the mountain, said, I'm done with you guys. I'm going right to the source. I mean, do you sense the urgency in this this father's heart? I mean, he doesn't have a lot of faith that the disciples of Jesus can do anything now. He just asked them, hey, heal my son, help my son. He pled with them, he begged with them. And however long they were probably up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's how long this begging went on. And nothing happened. So you can see where his faith was probably took a blow, the father. But you know what? He still had faith that somehow if I could just get to Jesus, if I could ask him, maybe he could do it. I'm done with the disciples. Okay, I'm going to move on right to the main guy. Today in our society, sometimes when you talk to people who don't regularly come to church, and even sometimes these people make, are making professions of faith and they're Christians, and when you ask them, well, why don't you go to church? Well, I don't need to go to church. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites, and all they want is your money, and you know, I just go right to the source. <laughs> and that's almost what this father's doing, in a way. He's looking at the disciples and going, okay, you guys are his representatives, and you can't do this? I'm done with you. I'm moving right to the source. They don't have a lot of faith in the agents of Jesus. But they like to work their way past the agents and go right to the source. So we see the pleading of the father, cry of the father, the the little faith of the followers. Look at verse 17. Matthew 17, verse 17. Remember, this is all setting up his lesson. 
Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? What are you, what are you picking up in the words of Jesus right here? <laughs> little bit of maybe frustration. That's what I'm picking up big time. Just a little bit. You faithless, perverse generation, how long am I going to bear with you? How long do I have to put up with this? You know, you, you don't get many times when you see the heart of Jesus like this. But he's frustrated. Have you ever been frustrated? If you're human, you have. You know what this shows me? Because we know that our Lord never sinned, right? Yet he was frustrated. You can be frustrated in life and not sin. Frustration in and of itself is not a sin. You have to be careful. Because if you're frustrated long enough, what's the frustration lead to? Anger. A little bit of tension. Sure. Jesus is frustrated here. You're really seeing the heart of Christ. You're, you're seeing the pain in his heart. You're hearing the disappointment as he speaks these words. Well, who's he talking about? Who is this faithless and perverse generation? I think it's a very general statement. I think he's looking at the whole crew. He's looking at the whole multitude that was there, the scribes, the people that are following him just to see another miracle. He's looking at the disciples. He's looking at everybody around him who isn't exercising faith. That's what he's looking at. I mean, particularly the inability of the disciples to do what he was instructed them to do. Just the fact that the scribes are part of this group and they're standing there while Jesus is up on the mountain. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were always trying to mock him. They were always trying to catch him. They were always trying to accuse him. Can you imagine what a sideshow this was? The disciples are there and, oh, okay, you want us to catch? No problem. We'll take care of your son. And it doesn't work. And the religious leaders are sitting back going, oh, look at this. This is going to be interesting. These silly disciples, they can't even do what Jesus asked them to do. The Lord is saying, your disciples are symbolic of the whole generation of faithless people. The Father himself, even, was included in this because his faith was weakening. Because in Mark's gospel, in the account of this, he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. So he wasn't 100% on board either. He believed a little bit, but not much more than a little bit. So the Lord is basically looking at everybody. See, if you don't trust God, and if you don't believe in God, you get twisted. That's what that word means, twisted, perverse. It's twisted, crooked, 
It's used of objects that are made by someone who is a craftsman. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had a uh, ceramic class. And one of the things with the, the ceramic, as you know, it's not clay, so you, you mold it by a, in, a, in a hard mold, and then you break it apart, and then you have a piece of greenware, and you take this piece of greenware, and depending on what you're going to do with it, you fire it, and it turns white, and then you can paint it, and you put it back in the kiln, and you fire it again, and you get the different colors, whatever. Well, so many times, when I was unmolding my greenware from the mold something would happen to it. A lot of times it was a planter. And I'd be taking it apart, and inevitably the sides would break off or something. And I remember taking these broken pieces of, of greenware and just kind of taking the broken sides and throwing them away, basically, and taking the base and making ashtrays out of them. Because people in my family smoked. So we had a ton of ashtrays for my ceramic class because my craftsmanship at ceramics wasn't that good. I didn't complete what I set out to do. It was twisted. We had ashtrays all over the house. Well, that's what this word means. It means twisted, distorted, out of shape. He says, you people, you, you don't believe, and you're twisted, you're distorted. That's the generation he faced. And that's why he's kind of frustrated. That's why he's saying, how long shall I be with you? It'd be like somebody who has no problem, problem making ceramics working with me. They would get frustrated with me. Well, you're doing it wrong. And, you know, I keep on making ashtrays, not planters. They, they would be very frustrated. That's what Jesus is. You know, he's, he's used to working with angels. Think about it. Now he's working with the disciples. <laughs> Big difference. He's just a little frustrated. statement in verse 17, how long shall I be with you? It almost says, man, is my time up yet? (laughs) I just want to get out of this place. You know, bring on the cross. Let me go back to glory. I'm tired of this. A little anxious to go back to the Father. How long do I have to endure this? Because his contemporaries were just disastrous failures and even his own disciples were continually having to learn the same lesson over and over and over again. I mean, when you look at the crowd here, the crowd is just a bunch of thrill-seeking people who really don't believe. The scribes, they're gloating because the disciples couldn't do what Jesus told them to do. And the inability of the, the nine disciples to heal the young, boy, all this stuff just doesn't make Jesus very happy. Father struggling with his faith. And Jesus says, you know what? 33 years is about all I can take of this. So, verse 17. Just quick statement. Bring him here to me. I'm done with this. Bring him here to me. I'm not going to play any more games. Now, at this point, Jesus, or Matthew doesn't tell us what happened, but Mark does. Mark says, the father brought the boy. And as he brought the boy, Mark says, the demon in the boy saw Jesus. 
And when he saw Jesus, it says that he threw the boy into one of these convulsions and started smashing the boy into the dirt. And he began to roll around in the dirt, wallow in the dirt. He began to foam in his mouth. I mean, you think he's deaf and dumb in addition to this. I mean, what a horrible scene for a father to see. This shows us that the demon knew exactly who Jesus was. Demons know Christ. In Acts 19, 15, when the demon said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? (laughs) They know Jesus. And this one knew him, just like all the demons know Christ. When he saw Jesus, it says this demon who had been really demonizing this boy for years, when he saw Jesus, he threw the boy into another one of his convulsions. It says in verse 18, Matthew 17, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. I mean, can you even imagine being there, being this father? You've been living for years with your only son who is epileptic. He's throwing himself into convulsions. The demon is possessing him, and he's throwing himself in the fire, trying to kill himself in the water, cutting himself. All this stuff is going on for years, and he's... He has no ability to control it at all. And it's just an inkling of faith. He cries out to Christ. He takes him to Christ, to his disciples. And the disciples try to cast this demon out, but apparently nothing happened. But his faith isn't dashed. He moves on to Jesus himself. And Jesus, in just a millisecond, boom, everything is fine. No more convulsions. No more seizures. No more profanity spewing out of his mouth. No more foam coming out of his mouth. No more dumbness. No more inability to hear. What an incredible miracle. But Jesus always had that kind of power because he was the son of God. It was part of his ministry to cast out demons. He did it over and over and over and over again. We've seen it in chapter 8 twice. We've seen it in chapter 9. We've seen it in chapter 12. And now we see it here. Jesus had power over these wretched fallen angels. The Gospel of Luke, he adds a different phrase here at the end, which is kind of interesting. After this all happened, after they saw this boy miraculously healed, it says this, In Luke it says, and all were astonished. (laughs) That's to say the least. All were astonished at the what? Majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. It's the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1.16 when it says that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the holy mount. Christ revealed his majesty through this healing. He revealed his glory. 
and he heals the child by himself. And this brings us to the main point of the whole passage, you might say. Brings us down to the whole, the last point, the power of faith. This is teaching time. Jesus uses all this to set up this lesson that he's about to give his disciples. I mean, it could end right here and we could walk away saying, well, that was nice. Jesus healed this little boy and now the boy can live happily ever after with his only father and everything worked out great. That's great. But that's, that's aside from what Jesus truly wants to teach us here. Wonderful story, Jesus. Glad it happened that way. Good for the outcome. But what is this really all about? The whole incident is merely an illustration of the lesson in verse 19. It says there, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. You know why they did that, right? I mean, they were probably embarrassed. They were probably ashamed. Here Jesus gave them the power. He gave them the commission to go out and heal the sick and cast out demons and perform all these miracles, and they have been doing it up to this point. And then Jesus comes along and says, tired, okay, boom, boy's healed. Mark says they went into a home. Maybe where they were staying or something, we don't know. And they got Jesus alone, and they said, why couldn't we do this? What's going on here, Jesus? This doesn't square with what you told us in, in chapter 10, Jesus. This doesn't square with what we did before. Why doesn't this work? Why couldn't we cast it out? So Jesus says, okay, lesson time. Listen up, guys. And here's what he says. Because of your literal text says little faith. Little faith. Some versions say unbelief. It's not unbelief. They believed in Christ. They believed in what he could do. They saw it firsthand. He wasn't saying they didn't have any faith. What was he saying? He's saying, you don't have the right amount of faith. You have little faith. You have weak faith. What he's saying is you didn't believe enough, guys. So many times we try to eliminate faith from our lives altogether because we want to believe in the logical. We want to believe in facts. We don't want to deal with faith. But their problem was they had little faith. Have you ever heard that before in reference to the disciples? I think so. Just call the disciples the little faith gang. (laughs) That's exactly what they were. Four times Jesus says to them, Oh, ye of little faith. What's he saying? 
What is our Lord saying when he says, O ye of little faith? Does he mean, well, you you don't believe down deep in, in some subjective way in your own soul? Is that what he's saying? When the disciples first saw this child, when the Father brought him to the nine disciples, do you think that the nine disciples tried to heal the little boy? We know they tried, right? Because the Father said they tried and they couldn't do it. So we know they at least tried. We know they at least tried once. You think maybe they tried twice? I think they probably did. They probably thought, wait, maybe, you know, maybe we're not saying something, or maybe, well, I don't know what they thought. But they probably tried it again. Demon come out, nothing happens. Boy's still thrashing around on the ground. Father's looking at them, scribes are mocking him. Probably tried it several times. They tried it until they got to the point where they said, you know what, this isn't going to work. It's too difficult for the Lord. It just can't be done. So what'd they do? They gave up. They said, sorry, Dad, we can't help you. This demon, whatever's in your boy, he's a, he's a real nasty one, and we can't deal with it. Sorry. What happened? Their faith ran out. It's not that they didn't have faith. They didn't, it says they had little faith. And we see that over and over in Matthew 6. We see Jesus teaching them an important lesson. In chapter 5, verse 30, when he's talking about the grass of the fields and providing for you and all that stuff, cast into the oven, he says, My Father will clothe you, O ye of little faith. See, the disciples were always worried about the, the logical things in life. And when something wasn't provided, their faith ran out. stop and you think of them on the, the storm in the boat where on the Sea of Galilee. They're in the midst of this tremendous storm. And Jesus was what? He's asleep. Okay? The Son of God is asleep. They shake him. They wake him. They say, Lord, save us. We're going to perish. We're all going to drown and die. And what's he say? Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? See, when faith stops, Worry begins. When faith stops, beloved, worry begins. See, it's not that they didn't have any faith. They had little faith. And I think that maybe at this point, they've been healing demons, casting demons out and healing people, whatever. Maybe they got a little bit too comfortable (laughs) with how God was working through them. Maybe when the Father came up to them, the nine, and said, can you heal my son? He's demon-possessed. Oh, yeah, no problem. Come on, guys, let's do it. Just like before, no big deal. Well, then it didn't work. What happens? The faith ran out. And when faith stops, worry begins. Doubt begins.
Remember Peter when he was out on the, the walking on the water? Literally walking on water. And he saw the wind and he saw the waves and he began to sink and he said, Lord, save me. And the Lord reached out his hand, caught him. Same speech. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He could believe God until he saw the wind, until he saw the storm. And when he knew there was no human way to conquer that problem, he ran out of faith. See, beloved, sometimes a lesson for us today is sometimes we're faced with something in our lives that is insurmountable. It seems impossible. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? You need to have faith, but you have to make sure that the focus of your faith is me and not you. Because of your little faith, for assuredly I say to you, look at what he says. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, remember when we went through this? Little tiny, tiniest seed there is. You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. Well, what's he saying? Is he saying you can go out here to one of the mountains around us and say, by faith? No. He's using it as an illustration. He's using it as a, a way of helping them understand that, you know what, nothing, he says there, will be impossible for you. Why? Because I'm going to be working through you. That's the point. The point is not their own ability. The point is not the focus of ourselves. The point is, what is your faith in? Hopefully your faith is in a God who can deal with any problem you have, any burden you have. What he's telling them is, you know what, guys, you need to understand, every time you ask God for something, it may not come the first time you ask. Demon, come out. It didn't happen. Maybe they said, demon, come on out. No, it didn't happen. Maybe a third time, maybe a fourth time, maybe they did it ten times. Eventually they gave up, is what Jesus is saying. And they concluded, you know what, God can't do this. See, and that's where it doesn't matter how long you've been praying for your lost loved one, how many years, you, it, it doesn't matter. If you get to the point of saying, you know what, I'm not going to pray anymore because obviously God's not going to save them because they're not saved now. I've been praying for 20 years. His point is simply, doesn't matter the size of your faith. God gives us the faith that we need. But what is your faith in? Nothing will be impossible for you. And like I said at the end there, that last verse is added to a lot of the text. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting, but it's important to understand that prayer is an integral part of this. How many times are we faced with praying for something and it doesn't happen on our time schedule and we just give up? Or we take to our own selves to try to 
make it work the way we want it to, rather than just saying, you know what, God, this is in your sovereign hands. Close with this illustration. George Mueller, who was an incredible prayer warrior, story says that he began to pray for a group of five friends who were not believers. After five years, one of them came to Jesus Christ, got saved. After ten years, two more of them came to Christ. He prayed for 25 years, and the fourth man was eventually saved. And for the fifth, he prayed until the time of his death. And that fifth friend came to Christ a few months after George Mueller died. For that fifth friend, he prayed 52 years. Can you imagine? 52 years. I'm not even 52 years old. Have you bailed out? Have you quit? Has your faith ended? If you do, you're going to miss the power of God in your life. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we know that it's not in us that we should focus. It's in you. Lord, I pray that we will be faithful in all that you call us to do. I pray that we will persevere in what you lay on our hearts to pray for. Father, we think of those who we know personally who do not know you. Father, help us to continue to pray for their souls. Pray that you would shed light on their understanding. Pray that you would draw them into a relationship with you. Give them a hunger and a thirst for the truth, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Pray that you would transform their heart into, from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That you would give them, grant them repentance. That we would see them marvelously, marvelously saved for your glory. Help us never to lose sight of the, the focus of our faith is you, and you are able to do that as we saw this morning in a split second. You can take years of burdens and chaos in our lives and transform them into perfect tranquility just with the move of your hand. Father, we thank you that this is the God we serve. And we praise you. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that they would, as this father prayed, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, that they would cry out to you, Holy God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that you would answer that prayer of faith. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.